Welcome to the Jazz Shapers podcast from Mishkondorea. What you're about to hear was originally broadcast on Jazz FM. However, the music has been cut due to rights issues. This is Jazz Shapers with Elliot Moss on Jazz FM. In partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business, but it's personal. Listening colour. Welcome to Jazz Shapers with me, Elliot Moss, bringing the shapers of the business world together with the musicians shaping jazz, soul and blues. My guest today is Ayman Rahman, founder and CEO of DARE, the energy tech trading firm. Having realised to his parents' disappointment that rather than become a doctor, he was drawn to the risks and rewards of the financial world, Ayman became, as he says, obsessed about how to get a job in trading. When a small energy trading firm gave him a chance to learn his craft on the high-pressure trading floor, Iman's rapid rise saw him in less than two years become the company's head of fuel oil trading. In 2016, he launched his own venture called Versa with his wife Fatea Begum and best friend Jono Ui, focused on providing liquidities for refined products such as gasoline and propane. But spotting an opportunity to shift their model towards emerging data-driven power and renewables markets, Iman rebranded his business to Dare in 2021. Dare now trades on average $8.5 billion of energy contracts every day and aims to help the world reach a renewable future faster. It's lovely to have you here. Fabulous that you can make it. Tell me firstly, before we go through all the fabulous questions I have to answer, well, we'll see if they're fabulous or not, but interesting questions to me. Tell me what you do, because some people won't quite know. Certainly. Well, look, Elliot, thank you for having me on the show today. Um, real privilege, pleasure to be here and meet you all. So what do we do? Well, like you said, we provide liquidity to energy, financial contracts. But what does that actually mean? Well, when companies who have exposure to energy prices, that could be a refinery or it could be a wind farm, want to kind of make a decision about something that they're going to do in the future, whether that's how much oil they're going to refine, how much power they're going to produce, they want to do that safe in the knowledge that a price is available for them to lock in. We can sell it at this price, we can buy it at this price, we can make some certain business decisions around that. That's basically what hedging is. So we, as a service, trade with a lot of these counterparties in the markets, and we are the other side of those deals. So we use kind of models, analytics, our own kind of proprietary way of looking at things and help big companies who have energy price exposure manage that risk. How many are there of you in this business doing this clever thing? So our team size is about 200 right now. It's probably about 50 people on the on the trading side. Okay. I understand that your first foray into the world of trading was something out of Trading Places. I think it was called Trading Places with Eddie Murphy many years ago. All I've got in my head is this is this lunacy. Mm. Is that the true story of what happened to um, Ayman Rahman that day? It's surprisingly pretty close. And that surprised me. I remember on my first day stepping onto a trading floor, a lot of shouting, you know, a lot of screaming, a lot of buying and selling. And I thought, well, look, it's 2012. And that's when I started my, my career. Like, it's going to be all on computers, it's going to be all models and analysis. You know, this kind of trading places style, you know, in markets is, is gone. But lo and behold, there's a niche OTC oil and energy product market that still is done on voice. OTC standing for? Over the counter. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So um, a lot of these deals are still done on voice. And, and that means emotions. That means, you know, shouting. That means... Just a really vibrant atmosphere on the trading floor where, where there's a lot going on. And uh, yeah, it's, it's something that needs to be experienced to be really appreciated. And you were thrown in. I mean, you're not, obviously at some point you have to do something for the first time. Yeah. I remember years ago someone said that 
you know, the first time you ever have, insert name, and in this instance, it was a McDonald's Big Mac, you never forget the taste of the McDonald's Big Mac. <laughs> um, I don't know, whether you eat them now or not is neither here nor there. That first time you made your first trade, if mm. you can go back, what was the sensation? Sensation. So there's a couple of types of trades, right? So when you're first starting out as a, as a new trader, you might be trading on someone else's portfolio, right? So you're kind of doing a trade at someone's request. Mentally, that's relatively easy, right? So it's, okay, my boss has asked me to do this. Fair enough. Well, that's his decision. That's his skin in the game. And you've got to execute. And you've got to execute. So that's okay, right? He usually, he or she, but usually he in our industry, unfortunately, is, is going to ask, right, well, why did you do that in line with what I asked? What were you thinking about? Did you consider these factors, et cetera, et cetera? But ultimately, that decision has been made on top of you. So it's not too bad. The first time you make a trading decision for yourself, that's a different experience because all of a sudden it's what you've thought about personally. It's what you've considered and analyzed in the market. That is, you know, a, a scary experience, right? You're out there and you're going to live and die and the results will show basis what you've decided. It's thrilling and it takes some getting used to, but uh, yeah, it's, it's, um, it's an experience. You said something about the thrill. So obviously your family background... You've got parents who say, we'd like you to be a doctor. And you say, um, that looks lovely, but no, thank you. Where's that thrill seeker come from in you? What do you think brought you to this place where you're interested in risk? I think um, I'm blessed, privileged to say that I had a pretty secure and safe upbringing. And that then allows you to take risk, right? When you have parents and a back network around you that you know if you fail, you've got something to fall back on, right? Well, my dad, my mum, reasonably well off, middle class. If I go into trading and it doesn't work out, well, worst case, I'll move back in with them. Did you really I'll think that, out. though? Yeah, yeah, genuinely. I yeah. knew that, like, I'm not going to be out, like, on the street or working in, you know, a, a really basic retail job to pay the bills, right? There's, there's that optionality I think, of I think there's something more, though, because lots of people, you know, I had a secure background. Yeah, but yeah. it doesn't mean that I've gone and done what you've That's done. True. And I meet lots of people that yeah. haven't done what you've done. And of course, very privileged for me to meet people like you who have. Mm. Is there something else that drove the risk? I'm looking in your eyes and these, yeah, are, these yeah. eyes of yours, the big eyes, are twinkling. You're going, okay, I, I want to know where that juice is from. Mm. I mean, what's, where, yeah, where's no, it you're from? right. You're, you're spot on. I mean, I think, to be honest, I don't know. But I'll tell you what I think, right? Um, I think it comes from insecurity. I think... There is a desire to want to prove yourself. There is a desire to show the world or people around you or even yourself like what you're capable of and what you can do. You know, I grew up as a, as a Muslim guy in the wake of 9-11 in a town which had hardly any people of color and a very few number of Muslims. Um, you know, going to school after 2001, like you feel that sense of othering, right? Yeah, like difference. that sense of hey, you're not, you know, part of the real community here. Mm. And it's only really after I moved to London that I recognized that. But I think subconsciously, there's definitely an element of, well, actually, I'd like to show that I can contribute and do something great in the community and, you know, be a part of this great country that we've built. So that's my theory. But it's one of these things that a lot of things go into making something happen. And it's easy to put a story on it in reverse. Difficult to figure it out as, as maybe... Well, that's why I wonder when you said it's my family. I think I'm thinking, yeah, no, that ticks a box. But mm. that tells you why you weren't frightened to do it. It doesn't tell you what was drawing you towards the, yeah, the, heat, the heat of battle. Indeed. At what point then in during that, that sense of 
the proving yourself bit. At what point did you go, I want to set up my own shop? Do you remember that that moment? Yeah. And what was that about? So, I mean, I was ridiculously naive, right? I, I came in 16, 17. As soon as I figured that I wanted to be a trader, that was always my plan. I would read about hedge fund guys and people that had set up their own businesses. And I didn't want to just go sit in an investment bank and trade. My whole kind of methodology of thinking about it was, right, how do I learn something that I can do myself straight away? So, yeah, just chasing that and looking for, like, avenues constantly to be like, right, what can I take away? How scalable is this? What do I need? Right. So there's certain things within trading you you can't do unless you've got a huge balance sheet behind you, right? If you get into those areas, then unless you're at a bank, you're not going to be able to build a business. Luckily, after 2008, some new regulation came in. Dodd-Frank, you may have heard about it, right? So for some of the listeners, what did that mean? It meant banks couldn't take risk in the same way that they could before. They couldn't have positions, buy and sell stuff speculatively, which meant they became really limited as to the, their levels of activity. It created an opportunity for some independent groups to start up. And that was what the first company I started in was doing. Right? They were coming in and taking the role that banks had had previously to help other counterparties manage risk. So I got very lucky. Right? got very lucky to go into a niche area within another niche area that also had scalability for someone starting with a relatively small pool of capital. I kept my eyes open looking for something like that. But the stars aligned and you know I can't take too much credit for, for ending up in the right seat at the right no, time. I don't buy that either, but we'll come back to that. I love this guy. <laughs> He's not taking too much credit. I'm Rom's my business shaper. Uh, he's the founder of Dare and they deal with finance and energy. And there's lots more coming from him very shortly. Right now, they've got a clip from the Mishcon Academy digital sessions. They can be found on all the major podcast platforms. MDRX CEO Tom Grogan and COO Sean Rodway talk about the metaverse, what it is, why companies would wish to explore it and the potential risks that we should all be aware of. Mishcon Academy Digital Sessions. Conversations on the legal topics affecting businesses and individuals today. So you've mentioned that the metaverse can improve top line and bottom line. Tell us about some ways that it can improve the top line for a business. So we're seeing businesses use the metaverse in a number of ways to drive new revenue. So take a retailer, for example. Data might tell them that customers that shop in-store rather than customers that shop online have a higher spend and are therefore more profitable for the company. Those retailers are investing in more experiential, more immersive shopping experiences. Why can't a retailer use technology such as augmented or virtual realities to tell a more bespoke, unique story to its shoppers as they walk through the door? Why can't every person's experience when they walk through an expensive central London piece of real estate be told their own story that's tailored to their own unique likes, dislikes, fashion preferences from the moment they walk through the door. All of these sorts of things are possible using metaverse technologies and we're really only seeing the tip of the iceberg in making that happen. Another way that a organisation or an individual might drive new revenue, improve their top line using metaverses by achieving scale that just isn't possible in the physical world. We're seeing some high profile examples recently of musicians who are able to sell vast, vast numbers of tickets to their online concerts that would be infeasible and certainly prohibitively expensive were they to try and run it in person in the physical world. 
the Mishcon Academy Digital Sessions. To access advice for businesses that is regularly updated, please visit mishcon.com. Jazz Shapers on Jazz FM. In partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business, but it's personal. You can, of course, find all our former business shapers, I think there's around 500 of them, which is fabulous, on the Jazz Shapers podcast. And you can hear this very program again if you pop Jazz Shapers into your podcast platform of choice. My guest there, as I've mentioned earlier, and I hope you've been with me, is Ayman Rahman, founder and CEO of Dare, the energy tech trading firm. You talked before about, oh, I just got lucky. You know, stuff happened and I was in the right place at the right time. A 16, 17-year-old version of you, which you referenced as well, you said, oh, well, you know, what could be scalable? Um, what's this? What's that? And I'm thinking, well, I mean, I have a 17-year-old, I have a 19-year-old, and they're pretty interesting characters, and maybe they are sort of thinking in the same way as you, but that's not that normal to already be pondering on those things. And then there's something else you've mentioned, I think, about the trader who looks at the deal. All that stuff, how did you bring it together to actually get business one off the ground? What actually happened in those in that period of time, that gestation, and then the the creation of the first version of Dare? Yeah. So joining my first company and having it be quite a small company allowed me to observe what a startup felt like. Right. So you can see the quirks, the nuances, the difficulties with growing, and you know you kind of pick up a lot of that by diffusion. My first role was nominally a trader, a junior trader, but because it's such a small company, you're doing support work, you're doing risk management, you're doing reconciliation. So you're kind of learning like a lot about the wider business. In my second role, I went to kind of start a department. So the department, the desk, as we call it in the trading world, fuel oil, which I had learned at my previous company, I started a brand new department at a company that didn't have a fuel oil desk. So again, I'm getting like a little bit of training about how to start something up, right? So I'm doing a new desk, having been at a startup. So there's the building blocks are kind of coming together. I'm seeing the challenges, I'm learning as I go. And then kind of we had a, a blowout year in that second company, right? So the company was pretty small. They were doing about two million a year. We came in with this new department, fuel oil trading. And in our first year, we made $12 million, right? So it's like, okay, wow, this is really good. We five, six X the company size here. It's super significant. At that point, I kind of turned around to the founders of that company and said, look, uh, you guys are nice and this is okay. Um, but, you know, I feel like I should have some skin in the game here, right? I should be a partner in this firm. I've five X'd you in, <laughs> in one year. I'd right? love their face. What were their faces like? That's very interesting. Thank you very much. And they said, <laughs> there's the door. I mean, not quite. Not quite, no, but pretty no. much, yeah, you know, that yeah. they said, look, it's never going to happen. Equity mm. is not on the table, right? We're, you're a trader. We don't think you can do this by yourself. Well, you light a fire under petrol, then, it's, you know, didn't need any more motivation. But if I did, you know, they gave it to me right there in a great position at that point because I've got a track record. I have a bit of a reputation in the industry and the oil industry and the energy industry, small, right? So people know each other. It's like, okay, well, that used to be the head trader at Company X. Start speaking to some investors, have a little bit of interest and, you know, have a track record to show, right? So it's not, it's not Iman saying, oh, he made $12 million. It's, here's Iman, here's his employment contract that says mm. he gets paid X percentage and here's his last paycheck which shows he actually did make this much money. So... Can't so, argue with it. So then you convince investors, then you then you go and do it. Exactly, yeah. The bit I'm interested in is that the, the trade is cut and thrust. Trading's fun, negotiating's fun, putting Indeed. positions on, realising a, a profit, thank you very much, and that's what it, really what you grew up on. Yeah. The second piece, though, building a company, and you mentioned the, I was running a department, I looked at compliance, all those pieces around it. Which bit 
gives you a buzz? Has the buzz changed from the cut and thrust to the building? Yeah, the buzz always comes for me from growth and progress, a new challenge. So whether that's starting a new department at the earlier stages of my career, starting a new company at the foundation days of DARE, or whether that's today and we're growing into new areas like looking at electricity now, renewable products, metals, agricultural things, things that are outside my core expertise, but I get to meet really great people who are experts in these fields and build a business combining what we're good at, which is this kind of liquidity providing market maker style of trading with, with new products and, and figuring out how to do that. And I love it particularly when people say it can't be done. That's, Which is more, all of this is much more three-dimensional than a two-dimensional trade, essentially. It feels yeah. like that's what you're really into, the whole, the whole picture. The building, yeah. The building. This thing about you and your relationship with change, as I, again, I look at you and you're a young person, a young person compared to me, <laughs> a young person doing his, doing his thing. Why are you driven to constantly kind of shake things up? Why is it interesting that you can apply data science why is it interesting that renewables are important to you? What's going on for you every day as you look at your business? At its core, I, there's an enjoyment there. I can give lots of different reasons about being at the forefront of change and, and, and you know, navigating the energy transition, which is a big theme in our lives. But ultimately, I find it fun just solving problems, coming together as a team and, and trying to tackle things that are hard. If it wasn't fun, I wouldn't do it. So I'm having fun and building the business and that's, that's it and... Kind of simple, but it's the truth. And I was looking at the culture of DARE. I, was, I always, when I do my research, I look at what people say, and often it's very similar, you know, we have integrity, we have all this, but yours is a bit punchier. Your Twitter feed is a bit punchier. You're like, we failed here. We interviewed 8,500 people for this job over here. It cost us 14 million, whatever it was, all these numbers. In other words, we've mucked up. So you're outspoken about the failures. Mm. You drive an outspoken culture. Where's that search for truth from? Where does that come from? Because, I, I, and again, it seems to inculcate everything about you and this business. I found over the last kind of 10 years that being direct, being honest, and sometimes even if it required being blunt, is the best way to get to the heart of the issue. We're trying to do difficult things. We're trying to solve things that haven't been done before. We can't do that unless we're really honest. Being really honest and trying things means we will make mistakes, and we do make mistakes. So we need to talk about them. We can't shy away from what our failures are. Speaking about them normalizes them. Speaking about them, I hope, encourages our team to continue taking risks. And it's those risks that take us to the next level. When we started DARE, you know, my last paycheck at my previous job was £1.2 million, 24 years old. Any sane person would probably look at that and say, let me do this for three or four years before taking a huge risk and starting a business which may or may not succeed. But that kind of culture and that ethos of being open to risk, being able to feel comfortable with risk and being able to feel comfortable with failure has led to all of the great successes in my life. And it's something I really want to continue encouraging in, in our whole team at DARE. And there's a massive contradiction in there, of course, because most people are incredibly uncomfortable with risk. So again, that apart from the, the is, it, is that going back to the listen, I just don't want to prove to the world that I'm the guy. <laughs> is that where that comes from, that comfort with it? Because you know you're going to have to go to the edge of risk mm. before you can push on to doing something remarkable. Is that what that is, or I, is it something I think, else? I think, it's, I think it's definitely a part of it. Um, I think there's also like a dissatisfaction with, with the status quo, a restlessness of being too comfortable in any one position. We're in a fantastic position. The business has done brilliant. There's no 
need for me in the traditional sense to carry on, right? I could be on the beach somewhere, but I'm not because I love the team, I love the challenge, but also because I don't feel I'd feel content unless we got to the limits of what we could do, right? And I'm trying to find the limit. <laughs> you should see the way he said that. It's like, you're going to get there at this rate, <laughs> I'm not arguing with you. I'm a Rom, my business shaper, and we'll have our final chat with him um, in a moment. We've also got some soul food from Gabriel's. That's coming up shortly. Don't go anywhere. Jazz Shapers on Jazz FM. In partnership with Mish Kondorea. It's business but it's personal. Just for a few more minutes, I'm Raman as my business shaper and we've been talking about your attitude to risk. We've been talking about the fact you love building stuff. We've touched on renewables. It would be impossible to avoid a headline or an interview with a prime minister or anything else at the moment about net zero, about the fact that climate change is serious. It's no longer a side issue. It was a side issue when I was growing up. People were talking about it in the 80s and we all said, don't know what you're talking about. Now, literally everybody knows that we have to make this shift. Tell me what you're doing specifically to be part of making that shift and why that makes sense to you. So our kind of role is within energy markets. So anyone that wants to do anything at a price needs to know what that price is. We help companies discover what that price is and what it can be in the future so they can plan and make their decisions. That's our kind of role. It is at the edge of the energy transition. It's not front and center, right? Front and center, I think we need massive action, massive action from governments, massive actions from groups of countries coming together, forums like the United Nations. And, you know, I think like a lot of people today probably feel like we're not doing enough, right? The the targets keep getting pushed back, whether it's 2030, we're going to be net zero, 2050. A lot of the companies in our industry are pushing back their targets too. And there isn't a lot of consequence from doing that, right? Look at what BP have done most recently, scaled back massively their targets for when they're going to be a net carbon zero company or or reduce their emissions by X percent. So is your point that you're really part of that rather than the key driver of it? Or is there anything you feel that you can actively do to to make this transition quicker? So... Is there anything we can actively do? I am racking my brain to try and figure it out because it feels like there should be, right? We're a company that's involved trading billions of dollars of energy every single day. We have massive data, massive access to these markets. I feel like there's something there that we can add value to that transition in a material way. I haven't figured out what it is yet, if I'm being very honest. No, that's all right, but you're you're looking at it. We're trying, we're trying, but it's a huge problem. You know, you need to come up with something clever. So let's see. You've mentioned money along the way, and obviously you're in the money business. And for those people that hear these numbers, $8.5 billion a day, that's a lot. And and huge numbers being thrown around. And if people have seen the, the I think it was the, the Times Young Person's Rich List and all these other things, they go, wow, this guy, he must be doing something right because there's some money attached, there's some value attached. A couple of questions for you. Firstly, and you talked about the 1.2 million paycheck before you moved. Mm-hmm. What's your relationship like with money? Does it does it give you any kind of buzz? What's that about? And secondly, is there a responsibility that you feel to use that money in the future to do things that genuinely have a big impact? Yes, it's, it's, it's such an important question, something that, that I've thought about. Um, my relationship with money is kind of twofold, right? On the one hand, I don't consider myself like a hugely material person, right? I don't drive a Ferrari or anything like that. It's never really interested me. You know, we live comfortably as a family. Um, we try to give to charity. We try to, you know, look after our friends and family and, and, and be good with it. So in that sense, you know, the actual 
kind of quality of life that money can give you is great, but it's not, it's not everything. It's not the be-all and end-all. But the other side of me, the driving part of me, the business shaper side of me, if you will, is obsessed with money, right? And it's obsessed with money as a scorecard, right? That's what I see it as. It's how high can I put this total on the scoreboard? You know, pushing the limit as a measure of success, right? It's not that makes you successful. That's not your impact on the world. But it's a objective thing about how much value you've created on our planet. You know, I have mixed feelings about feeling like that in a weird way. You know, I want to build a business that has an impact. We've spoken about doing things within renewables. But the money is, is a part of it, right? The money is that measure of success and that barometer that we use to compare ourselves. I'd be lying if I said I didn't look at it in that sense. I really like your honesty. I appreciate it. And I think, I think you're, you're right. Without, without that, you've got no engine to drive all the things that you want to drive anyway, regardless. Yeah. It's been really nice talking to you. And I'm sure you will continue to shape your industry. You are only at the beginning by the looks of things. So super good luck with that. Just before I let you disappear, though, what's your song choice and why have you chosen it? Well, Elliot, firstly, um, thank you for having me today on, on the show. It's been a pleasure. And the song I've chosen to play us out is uh, Jerry Rafferty's Baker Street. And I first heard that when I was seven years old with Lisa Simpson and Bleeding Gums Murphy on The Simpsons. So can't beat it. Um, absolutely love that tune. Jerry Rafferty there with Baker Street, the song choice of my business shaper today, Ayman Rahman. He talked about the importance of learning something he could do himself. And he was referring, of course, to trading. He talked about the buzz beyond trading coming from progress, growth and challenge and really building something, which is a phrase I loved when he said it. And he also talked about an ongoing dissatisfaction with the status quo. That's what drives him. And finally, and honestly, he talked about money being a scorecard and really important for him in the context of being able to do something and making an impact. That's it from Jazz Shapers. Have a lovely weekend. Jazz Shapers on Jazz FM. In partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business, but it's personal. We hope you enjoyed that edition of Jazz Shapers. You'll find hundreds more guests available for you to listen to in our archive. To find out more, just search Jazz Shapers in iTunes or your favourite podcast platform or head over to mishcon.com forward slash jazz shapers.